Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, Episode 57, The Casket. So last week, we stopped right at the heels of a Coptic rebellion in 725 AD, which came within a year of another tax reform initiated by the Caliph Hisham and his governor in Egypt, Obeid. The revolt was leaderless, but was concentrated in the eastern delta. Basically, a violent reaction to the increased taxation without much of a plan or a big vision of what comes afterward. Obeid in Fustat reacted quickly, sending by now the large Arab garrison. Now, these guys were not by any means a professional army. The professional Arab soldiers usually either went to the Byzantine frontier or North Africa. So the fighting was messy and extremely unkind to the bystanders. A scorched earth kind of campaign where the population of the eastern delta was basically wiped off the map, which suppressed the revolt pretty quickly, but left large tracts of productive land uncultivated and unproductive, as all the farmers and their families were either killed, ran away, or enslaved. So for the first time in our narrative, Obeid, coordinating with the Caliph, settled a large number of Arabs as farmers in the eastern delta, to replace those who have perished in a revolt. A significant development that so Arab and Copt live as neighbors for the first time and started to form a shared culture. Not only that development was important, but another equally important one was that the Arabs settled were Qiyasi tribes, which meant the blood feud in Syria and Palestine was now in Egypt as well and the Arabs settled as farmers, Qiyasis, would not necessarily be friendly to the descendants of the original conquest in Fustat, mostly Yemeni tribes. So in a way, if you were to pick a point where the Arabs started to become Egyptians, then this revolt would be as good as any, as you had a military elite in Fustat ruling over both settled Arabs and Egyptians in the rest of Egypt. The problem of taxation stayed so, as the newly settled Arabs did not pay any taxes and stayed with their weapons, willing to fight for that privilege. Further, in the aftermath of the rebellion, Obeid sent a contingent of troops to Alexandria to make sure that the rebellion does not break out there. The plan was to brand Pope Alexander publicly and essentially diminish his standing with his people. The patriarch was not involved in any way in the rebellion. The problem was that his office represented a natural rallying point for the cops and it needed to be publicly diminished. Alexander refused to be branded peacefully and a standoff ensued between him and the troops sent to Alexandria. Eventually, the Pope agreed to go to Fustat and speak with the governor personally. There, his effort in persuading Obeid not to publicly brand him failed, 
and he was put under a house arrest to be branded after three days. When the three days passed, Alexander, rather than be branded publicly, decided to try and escape from his house arrest. He succeeded, only to get sick during the journey and die under one. After a 25-year reign that was extremely difficult, the Patriarch of Alexandria has passed away after a lifetime where he was jailed, tortured, and suffered greatly. His last, and perhaps his only, active defiance, refusing to be branded publicly, ended up bringing a lot of trouble to at least one of his closest advisors, Moses, the Bishop of Wasim. He, as a punishment for helping Alexander escape, was arrested, brought to the middle of the market in Fustad, hanged by the arms with plans to torture him, until the Christian merchants pay a thousand dinar for his release, or he dies from exposure. After a week, 300 dinars were raised, and the bishop was released, expected to die pretty quickly. He somehow survived that ordeal so, and became a very respected figure as a sufferer for the face, a confessor, so to speak. He will come back shortly in our narrative, so do not forget about him just yet. For now, a patriarch was elected to follow Alexander, but he died very quick, within a few months, without any significant contribution to our story. Following him was a certain Theodore, a monk from Wadi Natrum, who ended up in his position for 12 years, was initially a fruitful partnership with Obeid, that kept things peaceful until 734, when Obeid left Egypt after close to a decade of successful administration, with the exception of that initial bloody revolt. As he efficiently managed the province, the caliph transferred him from Egypt to the much difficult to rule province of North Africa and its Berbers, who had their own rebellion going that will eventually take Obeid's life. His son, Al-Qasim, took his path, and he was, in the words of our sources, much more wicked than his father. He was young when he took his office, and he quickly ran into trouble that led to our second rebellion of the 8th century, this time in Upper Egypt. First, there was the issue of taking local girls as slaves, and as to rub salt into the wound, he would call the patriarch, Theodore, to bless his new acquisitions. Quote, the governor brought his young female slaves to the patriarch, that he might bless them, and I myself saw them. And he said to the father patriarch, These are your children. Lay your hand upon them and bless them, and give them a blessing, for I bought them recently. Theodore was not many options. Winterlock. Then, he essentially completely outsourced the administration to his corrupt court sycophants, whose corruption made the financial situation much worse. This eventually came to a head in 740, where after a two-year famine, a rebellion in Upper Egypt broke out. 
like the one before it, so. It was leaderless and an eruption of frustration rather than a bland movement. The garrison in Fustat put down that rebellion pretty quickly. And depending on the source, it seemed that more Arabs immigrated there as well to replace the dead farmers. There is so a couple of important consequences that came on the heels of that revolt. First, Al-Qasim was removed. Hisham was probably one of the best Umayyad caliphs and was sensible enough to remove ineffective governors quickly. Second, the patriarch Theodore died and the people office on the hills of the rebellion was left vacant with Al-Qasim first preventing a replacement while he was still the governor and then Hafiz, the new governor sent by the caliph demanding a large sum of money to let it happen which no one was able to supply. This was further complicated by the Chalcedonians in Egypt who were able to supply the requested money and after almost a hundred years absence got their first real patriarch since Salmukaukas all the way back to the days of the conquest. He was a needle maker by trade named Cosmos the first of what would be a stable succession for the next hundred years. It took a period of intense instability after the death of Hisham in 743 for the Coptic church to finally ordain a patriarch after a two-year gap. To keep up with the events in Damascus, despite his best efforts, the problem of not having enough money to pay all the Arabs a salary and exempt them from taxation persisted and became worse in the reign of Hisham. And this problem led to multiple failed rebellions all over the caliphate. First in Egypt as we went through already, then in Iraq where the grandson of Hussein rebelled, and finally in North Africa where its native Berbers actually managed to succeed and wipe off two Syrian armies in the process. On the Eastern Front, after the failed siege of Constantinople in the reign of Abdel Malik, Regular summer raids were organized in Anatolia, but the caliphate basically gave up annexing the territory of Byzantium. And east of Iran, in the Caucasus mountain passes, the Turkish tribes offered the Arab armies stiff resistance and drained a lot of money and resources. Finally, in Europe, a French duke, Charles Martel, defeated an Arab raid from Spain and put an end to further expansion on that front. In essence, Hisham reigned for the first time, so the loss of territory rather than the expansion. So a reckoning was coming, especially as the succession plan was not that great. The caliph had capable sons who qualified for the office, but he had sworn an oath when he was elevated to the position to pass the caliph's office to his brother's son, Al-Walid, rather than any of his own children. He tried to get out of this oath, but the Qiyasi Yemeni factions were opposed to that idea, and they were too powerful to be ignored. Basically, Al-Walid, the heir, was a drunk and ineffective, so many hoped to see him rise to the office and then manipulate him for their own self-interest 
which is exactly how it happened, and it ultimately put an end to the Umayyad dynasty. I will get to the specifics in Egypt and the Copts in a bit, but we have to go through the big events in the Caliphate first to appreciate what was going on in Egypt. In Damascus, Hisham died and was succeeded by Al-Walid, as the O stated, rather than any of his capable sons. Immediately after, Al-Walid was manipulated by the Qiyasi tribes, who pushed out their Yemeni rivals and Hisham's sons out of the Caliph circle. Also, encouraged by the same tribes, he tried to push his kids as his successors, which turned many of his cousins and extended family against him. In response, the Caliph ended up killing or banishing most of his own extended Umayyad family. Within a year, the Yemenis who were pushed out and the rest of the Umayyad who survived the Burj were actively planning a coup to remove the Caliph. He was caught without many guards in an isolated palace in the desert near Balmyra and killed off by one of his extended family. This immediately polarized the Syrian army between the Qiyasis, who wanted to avenge the Caliph, and the Yemenis who supported his replacement, a cousin named Yazid. In Egypt, its governor Hafiz was very aware of these developments and had a plan to exploit the situation. Is there out of brilliant foresight that paying the Arabs living in Egypt a salary and exempting them from taxation is not sustainable? Or more likely, as a reaction to seeing the central government breaking down, he decided it was time to raise his own army, loyal to him first above all. This force, named after the governor, the Hafizayah, were made exclusively from non-Arab native Egyptians, basically Copts who converted and became Muslims. This was done by exempting those who convert and join that army from the poll tax, which led to 24,000 men converting at the spot, was another 6,000 who were already Muslims, giving a rise to a force totaling 30,000 men in number. An impressive army on paper. But remember, many of those who joined were poor farmers who never fought anyone or anything before so they needed a lot of time to become a professional army. Time that the governor did not have, as when Al-Walid died and his cousin Yazid replaced him, ambitious men all over the caliphate turned their eyes to Damascus and to its political attachment to Egypt. And Yazid didn't really help the situation as he unexpectedly died six months into his reign with no clear successors which accelerated the brewing civil war, and these ambitious men made their move to seize the caliphate by force. The most dangerous of these men was the governor of Armenia, Marawan al-Humar, literally Marawan the donkey, a nickname he earned for his perseverance and stubbornness. As a governor on the frontier, he had access to a large amount of quality troops, and they respected his abilities as a general. 
he was also a Qiyasi tribal chief, which gave him a power base in Syria and Iraq. So, he took his troops and moved on Damascus, intending to take the caliphate by force from the nominal replacement of Yazid, his brother. To make a long story short, he succeeded, but only after some bloody burges of anybody who was not a Qiyasi. In Egypt, Hafiz, the governor, was not a Qiyasi, and he was quickly building his own army, which made Al-Humar nervous. First, he assigned a new governor to the province, and Hafiz, seeing the mediocre quality of his soldiers compared to Al-Humar veterans, resigned and was willing to step away. Unfortunately, his army was not about to let go of their newfound power. So they kicked the new governor out and in essence forced Hafiz to stay on as their governor. The next year, Al-Humar sent a large Syrian army to Egypt to crush its native army. Hafiz again wanted to step away, but his soldiers refused. After a period of negotiations, it was agreed that a new governor sent with the Syrian army would guarantee the safety of Hafiz and the Egyptians. In return, they will let him enter Fustant, a promise that was broken immediately, and Hafiz and the leaders of his force were rounded up and executed. The force was then disbanded, and a new governor relied on the Qiyasis in Egypt who were settled earlier during the rebellions to keep the peace. Now, during this period of upheaval, while Hafiz was recruiting his army of Egyptians, the Coptic bishops were able to get his permission to ordain a patriarch. But even then, things were very chaotic, and tensions between the Alexandrian clergy and the rest of the bishops stopped the ordination of a patriarch for a while. We are lucky, as these elections were witnessed by a primary source, and we have a lot of rich details. After taking the permission of Hafiz, a meeting took place to pick a patriarch in Fustat, near modern Cairo. In the meeting, on one side sat Abraham, Bishop of Fayyum, Mina, Bishop of Tamai, James, Bishop of Fusir, Theodore, Metropolitan Bishop of Masr, Victor, Bishop of Malish, James, Bishop of Saharaj, Isaac, Bishop of Samanud, Abraham, Bishop of Pelbais, Peter, Bishop of Ternut, and Michael, Bishop of Atreep. Basically, a representative body of the bishops from all over Egypt. On the other side, opposing them sat a delegation representing the priests and the deacons from Alexandria. Now, the Alexandrian delegation had already picked a candidate and told the bishops to approve him. But the bishops pushed back, as they wanted to pick their own candidate, rather than rubber stamp the Alexandrian nominee. The archpriest of Alexandria then responded by, quote, This affair regards us, not the bishops, who have nothing to do except to lay their hands upon him, and no more, for it is we who elect the patriarch.
a historically accurate statement. Yet Alexandria was becoming a political backwater, and in these changing time, the bishops felt that it should be they who choose the patriarch, not a couple of priests and deacons from the dying former capital of Egypt. A long standoff then ensued, and the assembly was breaking down without being able to come to a compromise. As a last resort, one of the bishops decided to try and get the Bishop of Wasim, Moses, the guy who was tortured publicly in the market for a week. He, because of his history, was greatly respected and could end the deadlock by giving his voice to one side over the other. But as expected, the torture had left him bit-bound in his monastery, and even being carried on a horse or a carriage would probably kill him. So, in an ingenious plan, he was brought in, wait for it, an open casket, and carried on the shoulders of a few trusted faithful to bring him to the assembly. After he arrived, the bishops assembled again, with the bishop of Wasim attending in his casket. In there, everyone took their seat, and I'm going to quote the Spartan full, as it is quite entertaining. Quote, They began to attack one another with words, as in the beginning, and as the strife increased, the bishops of the north said, Will you not appoint this man whose name is written down? But Abba Abraham, bishop of the Fayum, said, We have no part or lot with him. Then Abba Abraham said, If you would listen to me, we would all beseech God, as the canons command, and pray him to raise up for us whom he will, so that the church may not be divided into two parties. Then some of the northern bishops signified their approval of this proposal, and took their seats with the bishops of Upper Egypt. Now, the blessed Abba Moses, bishop of Wasim, was lying in the midst of the assembly, an account of the severity of the bane which he had suffered. And when he heard them speak of schism, he rose up by the power of the Holy Spirit which was with him, and beckoned with his hand to the clergy of Alexandria, so that they drew near to him. Then he said to them, What are you saying? They answered, What Abamina, bishop of Tamai, says, that is also our opinion, it is we that we appoint the patriarch, and you have nothing to do with this matter. Now, there was by his side a staff for him to lean upon an account of his infirmity. So he called to mind what the Lord did in the temple, when he drove out the money changers therein, with the scourge of cords, and he rose up and drove out the clergy of Alexandria, and pursued them, striking them with the staff, until he had forced them out through the door, saying to them, Depart from the midst of us, ruin not the church of God through the desires of your heart. And that's how the bishop of Wasim ended the deadlock, by literally chasing away the Alexandrian delegation after being brought to the meeting in a casket. I don't know if it can get any better than this. At any rate, Shortly after the chasing, a deacon recommended a priest named Michael to take the office. 
Without the Alexandrians, he was approved relatively quickly. An Hafiz sent a letter to his monastery to bring him to be confirmed. In what seemed like a miracle at the time, before the letters leave Fustand, Michael showed up out of nowhere with an entourage of his fellow monks. Apparently the monastery was seeking a tax relief, and a delegation from there was on their way to the governor while the bishops were debating. Future Pope Michael happened to be part of that delegation, and dropped in right on time for everyone to become convinced that he was handpicked by St. Mark himself. Additionally, after being ordained in Fustat, as the custom, he traveled to Alexandria, where it rained for the first time after a two-year absence, further cementing his miraculous ordination. The honeymoon did not last for long, so. Half his tax exemptions and raising of his army took a toll on the Christian community, as the conversions turned from a trickle to a steady raindrop. The bishop response to those conversions were basically twofold. Some retreated to the monasteries and prayed, and some, like the by now legendary Bishop of Wasim, went around and prophesied doom and those who converted. A prophecy that sort of came true when Hafiz and the leaders of his force were executed by the governor sent by Marawan and their army disbanded which convinced the new governor of the powers of the legendary bishop, and he was brought into his court. For the next five years, the caliph in Damascus, Marwan al-Omar, was facing one rebellion after another, mostly from Armenia, where the locals rebelled, and in Iraq, where the Burushias centered in Kufa, were trying to assert their independence again. A three-year period of constant battles took place, where by the end, Marwan was still in charge, but mostly because he had exhausted rather than defeated the Iraqis and the Armenians. Egypt surprisingly stayed peaceful, a calm before the storm of the upcoming Abbasids and the breakout of our third and fourth revolt of the 8th century. We will get to the Abbasids in full next week. But for now, just know that during these rebellions, a Persian convert named Abu Muslim had also successfully rebelled and taken control of distant Khorasan in the northeast of Iran. He quickly made an alliance with a distant branch of the Prophet family, the Abbasids, and together they set their eyes on Damascus. After all, if the governor of Armenia, an obscure general known as the donkey, can become a caliph, surely they too can do the same. An unlikely alliance that gave rise to the third incarnation of the caliphate, the one that lasted the longest, and as close as you can get to the theocratic monarchy of the popular imagination. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next week.